All right. Uh, let's get our sophisticated setup going here. How are you guys doing tonight? Oh, it's almost the end of the month. It's the 29th of September, 2021. Good evening. How are you tonight? Do you ever try falling asleep to my podcast? Uh, now, if you want podcasts to fall asleep to, um, let's see. Crime Junkie's not bad. The, uh, I, I'm completely uh, obsessed with Theranos and the trial. Uh, so that's pretty good stuff to listen to. Scott Adams, not because he's boring, just because he's even-toned. He doesn't spike in the way that I do. doesn't require the same kind of technical compression that I do. But uh, I, I am bad. I am bad to fall asleep to. I really am uh, on, on so many levels. So, yeah, how are you guys doing tonight? Bring on your questions. Uh, just finished watching Rationality Rules debunking UPP. <laughs> Oh, he did a bad job, man. I, I like a good critic. I really do. I think it's great. But you, you can only sharpen your sword against a whetstone, not against a piece of flaccid penis uh, slime and goo and plasticine. Uh, and he had the debate, and I got him to admit that rape, theft, assault, and murder, murder could never be universally preferable behavior. And so, yeah, it was great. Podcast to stay awake to Alex Jones. Yeah, also, minor apology, or maybe not minor if this bothers you. I have had some messages uh, that uh, me swallowing and drinking near the mic is driving people crazy. I apologize for that. Uh, I will attempt to deep throat it now. This will also be on my OnlyFans channel. But no, I will, uh, I will go back. Imagine Alex Jones playing Doom. I assume that's in one of his contacts on every show that he's just playing Doom. All right. Did you see that YouTube just banned all anti-vax channels? Several channels already nuked. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Now, I was talking to a friend of mine who's still on YouTube. I was talking to a friend of mine, and this person uh, was saying that, you know, there's not really much point. There'd be no point in me being on YouTube because even if I had stuff, you'd never show up and recommend it. This was happening to me for about a year and a half before I got banned with no warning, no due process, no appeal. Of course, right? It's uh, leftists. But... Um, yeah, I mean, YouTube is it's going to be cat videos and yay communism. That's that's it when it's done. So <laughs> Bitcoin isn't looking too good right now. <laughs> oh, my God. See, that's called the hedonic treadmill, right? So what's Bitcoin at? Last time I checked, it was like, I don't know what, 53K? 53,000? Let's see here. What are we at? Yeah, 52, so Canadian, $52,768. Yeah. How was it doing a year ago? What was it, 12K? So it's gone 4X in a year. And uh, you're like, oh my God, that's not looking too good. You've got to, got to, got to get off this treadmill where every high is your new standard and everything below that is a crash. I mean, you will simply go mad uh, and not enjoy life. Not enjoy life. Get off the hedonic treadmill. What's the point of Bitcoin going up if people are going to cash in? What are you talking about? If nobody ever cashed in, Bitcoin would never go up because at some point Bitcoin has to, it's still being denominated in fiat, right? So people have to buy it and sell it. So, All right, let's see here. Hello from Australia. Love your work, Steph. Yeah, sorry about your life in Australia, man. That's brutal. That's, uh, that's gun control, right? Uh, YouTube promotes extreme left rubbish like the Young Turks. Oh, yeah, no, the, um, I remember seeing that woman, uh, Susan, was uh, sitting down with Chunk Yogurt 
uh, on on the steps, just talking about bringing diverse voices to uh, to YouTube. Yeah, it's really uh, it's really sad. Uh, it's really sad. Yeah. So the anti-vax channels, yeah, they're all gone. They're all gone. You can't have a debate, and, and that's the root of the hesitancy, right? So I wanted to mention something to you guys. I think it's really interesting. This is from the Epoch Times, which I think is uh, is very good. Uh, it's a very good uh, publication. Um, oh, let's see here. Thank you for everyone who's given me the technical tips. I appreciate that. Oh, come on. There we go. What? No. Sorry, I haven't logged in on this computer yet, so we will get there. We will get there, I promise. No, all right, maybe I gotta sign in with this. Uh, don't you just love life when uh, it's just, uh, hey, I haven't been to this website in a while. What's my login? Ah, uh, there we go, all right. Okay, so I'm gonna do a little little Q and A here, my friends. A little Q and A here, and uh, you know, just just type in your your thoughts, right? So, what percent of Democrats? Okay, so for, let's just start with this. Forty-one percent of Democrats believe there is a what percentage that you go to hospital if you get COVID. So what, 41% of Democrats believe there is a what percentage chance of being hospitalized if you get COVID? What do we got? Come on, show me your numerical skills. Yeah, you guys are good. You guys are good. Uh, right, so yeah, some of you are not good. Uh, some of you are good. Some of you are not good at all. <laughs> okay, so uh, the answer is... Uh, so 41% of Democrats believe that there's a 50% chance that you get hospitalized for the CCP virus, right? For, the, for COVID-19. Isn't, isn't that wild? That is absolutely catastrophic misinformation, right? This absolutely, this is like staggeringly catastrophic misinformation. And I don't know. Sorry, I've just. It's just like oh, log in, oh, log in, oh, log in. It's like I did log in, so let me read the damn article because I already have. All right, um, but isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? So, so that, that is like genuine, horrifying misinformation, right? So 41% of registered Democrats believe that there's a 50% chance that an unvaccinated individual would go to the hospital for COVID-19. Now, 21% of Republicans and 26% of independents believe the same. So they believe if you get COVID, you have a 50% chance of ending up in hospital, in hospital. Were they polling a kindergarten? <laughs> only of the mind, only of the mind. All right, this is COVID. 
So, what is the actual percent? Just, just if, if, if you don't know, or if you do know, like, what is the actual percent? So 41% of them think that there's a 50% chance of being hospitalized for COVID. What is the actual percentage for, uh, for unvaccinated people, right? Wild, eh? So what have we got here? 0.3? No, I think you're thinking of a fatality rate. So it's a higher than, it's a tiny bit higher than 1% for unvaccinated people and lower for vaccinated people. So basically they have it off by a, a factor of 50, the 50 times off. They think half the people who get COVID end up in the hospital when the real number is about 1%. Now, if you're a healthy 30-year-old American, you have a one in what number chance of dying from COVID. If you're a healthy 30-year-old American, you have a one in what chance of dying from COVID? Am I going to see the new James Bond? God, no. No, once, uh, once this rabid diversity stuff hits, I'm, I'm done with them. I'm done with it. I wouldn't give them a dime. Oh, uh, so one in thousand, one in 3,000, one in 400, one in 1,500, one in 5,000, one in 10,000. One in a hundred thousand. You are all wrong. You are all wrong, my friends. You're all wrong. Now, I say this because I would have guessed wrong too, just, just so you know. But here's the thing. A recent Food and Drug Administration slide presented on September 17th during a panel discussion on whether to approve Pfizer's booster shot suggested that a healthy 30-year-old American has a 1 in 250,000 chance of dying from COVID. So 0.0004%. You, if you're a healthy 30-year-old American, you have a 1 in 250,000 chance of dying from COVID. Isn't that wild? I mean, 1 in 250,000 <laughs> chance of dying from COVID. So uh, people are like unbelievably uninformed, unbelievably no idea. And look, you, I'm not saying I would have done fantastically on this either. You guys have been reading about a lot of this stuff. And, you know, what are you, more in danger in the, <laughs> in the ambulance, in traffic than you are? Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? So... What percent, what percent for, for unvaccinated hospitalization risk, what percent of Democrats responded correctly that it's about a one in, uh, about a one percent chance of ending up in the hospital if you get COVID? What percentage of Democrats responded correctly? Hit me up. Hit me up. One in 250,000. No, no, that was the last one. That was the last one. 5%, 0%, 25%, 2, 2, 2, 22.001%. So the answer is that 
for unvaccinated hospitalization risk, 2% of Democrats responded correctly compared with 16% of Republicans. So the Democrats, you know, one thing they're known for, of course, is being glued to the TV, right? They're glued to the TV, they're glued to the media. That's their thing, right? And isn't it wild how unbelievably misinformed they are that we're sailing in a year and three quarters into this pandemic, right? That they have, they're off by a factor of 50, and only 2% of them are able to correctly assess the actual risk and dangers of COVID. 2% after 12 years of government education, four years of higher education, thousands of hours of media coverage, 2% of them are able to assess the risk correctly, and 41% of them think that the risk is 50 times what it is. So the reason I wanted to mention this is somebody had talked about how YouTube was nuking all of the anti-vax and blah, 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 right? Because they're spreading misinformation. Like that old Kelly Clarkson song, misinformation. <laughs> because you see, you, you wouldn't want to be spreading misinformation. Like, um, oh, I don't know, that the risk of hospitalization is 50 times what you think it is. Isn't that wild? Uh, yes, I will give a link to this study. I will put it right here in the chat. Do you want more information? Hit me with a Y if you want more information from this study. I know you can read it yourself, obviously, but it's good to test your, your thoughts, right? So Democrats were more likely to estimate hospitalization risks for the uh, for vaccinated population correctly, saying that 42% correctly stated that less than 1% of vaccinated people have been hospitalized. About 33% of Republicans correctly reported that less than 1% of vaccinated people have been hospitalized. So, but I think they only count you as vaccinated two weeks after you get your second vaccine, uh, which is interesting, right? Because then if you get a vaccine reaction, you're characterized as unvaccinated, which is really quite confusing to me. But I guess not if you want to make money, right? So isn't that wild? Only 8% of U.S. adults gave correct answers for the unvaccinated population and 38% for the vaccinated population, right? So they got the message that the vaccines reduce symptoms, but they didn't get the message that the unvaccinated have a tiny risk of ending up in hospital if they get COVID, right? Whew. Isn't that wild? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal and... How on earth can you shape? I mean, this is the problem. This is why, you know, people say, oh, go into politics. And it's like, if you, if you go into politics, this is the level of unbelievable bottom-dwelling pig ignorance that you have to deal with in the general population. That they think that the risk is 50 times what it actually is. I mean, that is, that is shocking in a way. I mean, even I'm pretty cynical about all of this stuff. I find it I find it a little shocking. I find it a little shocking just how unbelievably uninformed people are. So, yeah. I mean, how do you guys find this? Do you find this is the case with the people who, like in your life, the people who, oh, hey, Jake, nice to see you. Uh, do, you do you find this in people in your life that are just woefully misinformed? Misinformed, right? I mean, I, I really checked my data 
you know, I really, I do. I check my data really, really correctly. And occasionally I put stuff out there that's been false. I edit it. I apologize, you know, and, and, and correct it and so on. And so, you know, I got booted off uh, of, of media, right? Uh, because, uh, I don't know, hey, misinformation, hate speech, whatever it was going to be, whatever they, whatever they made up, right? But I had scientists on. I had facts on data charts, sources, uh, math, and, and all of that. And this level of misinformation is just astounding, right? It's just astounding. Yeah, they want to vax children who have virtually no risk. Yeah, children have it seem to have virtually no risk, so. Isn't that wild? Boy, have you seen the black-eyed babies? Let's see here. I'm just sort of catching up with the chat here. Yeah, I mean, of course, I don't agree with this misinformation thing. I think that misinformation is is a term, it's just, well, this goes against some convenient narrative. Misinformation should be cured by free speech, right? The cure for bad speech is more speech, blah, blah, blah. But if you were to deal with misinformation, you would deal with whoever had informed people that the risk of something is 50 times what it actually is. Similarly, shocking numbers on how many unarmed black men are shot by cops. Yeah, so, I mean, but they count as unarmed usually just without a gun. But if you have a guy 20, uh, 15 feet away from you, you can see these videos. If you have a guy with a knife 15 feet away from you, man, he can fruit ninja your ass in about three seconds. So, and yeah, it's like 11. If I remember rightly, like the year of the George Floyd stuff, it was uh, 11, uh, supposedly unarmed. And some of them were mentally ill. Some of them were charging. Some of them looked like they had weapons and all that, right? So, Crazy. Steph got, good, Steph got booted off media because he talked about the most taboo topic ever, race. Are you kidding me? That's all you ever hear about on the media. No, I just brought facts to the question of race and facts uh, and the narrative uh, can't, can't coexist. All right. Yeah, unarmed doesn't mean not dangerous. Yeah, it's crazy, right? All right. Um, do you guys hit Look, hit me with a. Do you want to do a typey one? Do you want to do a chatty one? I am uh, happy to either way. Oh, did you see the article about Alberta's lack of ICU capacity? The system is pathetic relative to American ICU capacity. Uh, I did. I did see that. In fact, uh, I think it's probably worth mentioning here. Uh, where do we go here? Um, Yes, so in Alberta, um, it's a Canadian province. It's like, it's the heartland of Canada. It's the Texas of Canada, so to speak, right? So this is from the National Post. It's a national magazine uh, in Canada. It took over when the Globe and Rail went hard lefty. Uh, the National Post kind of took over for some not totally lefty stuff. This is by a guy named Vitor Marciano, and this just came out uh, today. Uh, five hours ago. And so I think it's worth I think it's worth mentioning, right? He said many people have observed that the COVID-19 pandemic is changing everything. 
It is possible that one of the most important changes that COVID will bring is that it will end the lies Canadians have been telling themselves about our health care. That could be profound and likely self-image shattering as we finally acknowledge that we have a limited, flawed, and possibly insufficient health system. Uh, blah, blah, blah. We are, we, uh, Canada's always had this like little brother insecurity complex relative to the U.S. And it says, uh, he says, uh, Alberta, Canada, Alberta is Canada's richest province, the one that spends the most per capita on health care, is watching its province-wide system brought to the edge of collapse. The intensive care units of Alberta's hospitals, all of them, are currently filled with almost twice the number of ICU patients Alberta has ever had. The Alberta Medical Association says the province is facing a life-or-death situation. Right, so they're talking about triage, they've cancelled a bunch of surgeries and so on, right? Now, of course, no reporter will ever stand in front of any of these governments, or ministers or anything, and say, you guys have had almost two years to prepare for a pandemic. You know it comes in waves. You've known for a long time that the vaccines neither prevent infection nor transmission. The viral loads can be similar, if not higher, uh, in vaccinated people. So if you're not ready, why are we suffering? And, but of course, you know, they have to put all their diversity initiatives and pay for all of the training and, and uh, woke garbage that goes on and all of that. So there's no, not actually money for this. So anyway, he says the highly contagious Delta variant has created an intense and largest yet fourth wave of COVID in Alberta. You can look up whether you find the Delta highly contagious or not. I've seen both sides of the argument. COVID-19 has put about 24 people per 100,000 Albertans in hospital over the past week or so. 24 out of 100,000 Albertans. Roughly a quarter are in an intensive care unit bed. Now, this isn't 24 people per thousand. It's a very sparse 24 people per 100,000. And it is overwhelming. Alberta's hospitals and causing the province's centrally run health system to pull every lever possible to increase ICU capacity. It likely won't be enough. Sometime in the next week or so, Alberta may have to go to ICU triage protocols, you know, like in war. Right? People who will, will be fine without immediate intervention, people who will die even with, intermediate, with immediate intervention, and the people in the middle, right? Doctors, he said, may have to start following preset rules that determine whether someone with very severe COVID or someone injured in a serious motor vehicle accident can get an ICU bed. Already this week, Dr. Werner Yu, the CEO of Alberta's health system, declared that the only reason the system has not collapsed yet is that enough ICU beds are being freed up by patients who are dying every day. 24 people per 100,000 in hospital would put Alberta in the bottom half of the U.S. states by COVID hospitalization rate. See, that's pretty important, right? So say that again. 24 people per 100,000 in hospital would, would put Alberta in the bottom half of U.S. states by COVID hospitalization rate. The New York Times uh, tracks this information by state, and as of Tuesday, Montana was at 41 per 100,000, Alabama at 39, Texas at 40, Arizona at 25, and Colorado at 18. None of them are anywhere near a hospital crisis. Why? Because there's still vestiges of the free market in the American healthcare system. Save my life, I'll tell you. He goes on to write, in the past six weeks or so, hospitals in some U.S. states have approached 70 to 80 percent capacity, but they can handle these numbers. Pre-pandemic data from 2018 showed that all U.S. states, except Hawaii and Vermont, had an ICU capacity of 18 per 100,000 or better. That's not hospital capacity, that's intensive care unit capacity. And those numbers have likely increased since COVID. Alberta's expanded ICU capacity is 370 beds. <laughs> 
expanded ICU capacity is 370 beds or about eight beds per 100,000 people. Excuse my French, but in the middle of a fucking pandemic, eight beds per 100,000, that's their max. No American state could imagine implementing ICU triage protocols at only 24 hospitalizations per 100,000, but the richest province in Canada is facing this. Now, one of the arguments is that about six years ago, the far-left party in Canada, the, national, the, the New Democratic Party, the NDP, uh, pretty much eviscerated their uh, capacity. But anyway, the truth is our healthcare system may be free, but it is rationed. Making the system public and free means we can only afford it to be large enough to handle normal traffic. That means it is much too small to handle a pandemic. The U.S. system, for all its flaws and unfairness, creates capacity we have never seen in Canada. The poorest U.S. states have more ECU beds per capita than any province in Canada. Too often during the pandemic, iconoclast thinkers have asked why no Canadian province has taken the approach of COVID taken by Texas or Florida, which have had few COVID restrictions. Right? So why? Why is Canada so locked down? He says, the truth is that no Canadian province could absorb the hospitalization crush needed to lift restrictions while pursuing herd immunity. Alberta, which has been much better vaccinated than most places in the U.S., is being overwhelmed by the Delta variant. Any attempt at a Florida-type strategy would have had large numbers of Albertans dying from the normal accidental misfortunes of life because there would have been no hospital beds in which to care for them. When Canadians emerge from the other side of COVID, we are going to have to examine what type of health systems we want and are prepared to pay for. COVID and our expectations of world-class health care could bankrupt our provinces. Unlike the federal government, they can't print money to pay for their health spending deficits. This will be an important national debate that will likely redefine this issue and our self-image as Canadians. <laughs> Speeder, I mean, spoiler, that debate's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. See, First of all, the government puts in free health care in order to have control over people later, and we can kind of see that happening now. But people have made such terrible health care decisions or health decisions with their own lives that they really can't afford uh, non-socialized medicine anymore. So, yeah, they'll fight to the death, and you've got women being sentimental, and all that, right? You know, one picture of a sick person in a hallway, and everybody loses their mind because it's not in the plan. <laughs> anyway, so... Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty tragic. All right. And what do we got here? It's back, yeah, backlogged four years for elective surgeries. And they say elective like it's a nose job. It just means not immediate life saving. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. Why no discussion of allowing private free market ICU facilities obvious solution? No, you see, because that would take money away from the public system and people would die, yeah, right? So let's see here. Yeah. Yeah, and it's pretty wild that they're firing people in the middle of a pandemic. And, and you know, for the vaccination stuff, right? And these are nurses who've remained unvaccinated for the last year and a half of COVID in contact with a huge number of COVID patients. They either haven't gotten it, in which case they're probably not too concerned about it, or they've got it and recovered from it, in which case they have natural immunity. So, I don't know. Let's see here. Yeah, pandemic of the unvaccinated, yeah. Uh, yeah, nobody's talking about India and ivermectin, right? It's really sad. 
Did you follow the latest Canadian elections, Steph? I did not. I really didn't. I really didn't. And I mean, it was really very predictable. I think I made this prediction a couple of months ago that it was all just going to end up where it started. Right? The guy just spent $600 million in the middle of a pandemic to get pretty much where he started. All right. Why on earth would could anyone vote for the Liberals and NDP? All right. Nurses in 2020 are brave heroes doing TikToks on the front lines. I talked to a woman who was a nurse in Florida. Uh, I talked to her at some point in the past, and she said it was unbelievably boring. It was empty. It was unbelievably boring. Uh, Would you ever interview David Duke? I don't really do interviews that much anymore. Um, you know, I did, gosh, I did, um, I did hundreds of interviews and I was sometimes reading a complex book or two a week, plus doing call-in shows and live streams and writing books and parenting. And, you know, I, uh, I, I was really on the treadmill for a while there and, uh, I'm, I'm quite enjoying having a slightly less frantic approach, uh, to, to what it is that I'm doing. So I'm not really getting involved in interviews where I'd have to do a lot of background research or anything like that. So. Did you see they created a fake set for Biden to get his booster shot? I, I saw pictures of that. I, I don't know whether it's true or not, but no. All right. Uh, all right. So l- l- hit me with a why if you guys would like to switch to audio or if you have questions here, I'm happy to answer um, any, any of that, uh, any of the stuff that you have here. Sorry, I know a couple of questions blurred by there. If you want to type them back in again, I can watch those. Oh, and I did a oh, I did a call. Uh, if you can go to freedomain.locals.com. And if you're a subscriber, there's a amazing conversation there. It's a woman literally out of that crying girl meme because her husband, they're trapped in a bad situation. Her husband won't sell bitcoins to buy them a house. <laughs> it was really a pretty wild marital situation, so... All right, let's see here. Does making arguments presuppose that we ought to follow truth? So the moment someone corrects you, they're saying that there's an objective truth that you need to conform to, and the fact that you don't conform to it while making an objective truth statement is wrong. So yeah, the moment anyone argues with you, debates you, corrects you, gives you better information, better facts, yes, they are saying implicitly that... Uh, we ought to follow truth. You're not following truth, and therefore you need to. Like nobody says, really, you need to change your mind because it's upsetting me, right? They'll say, you need to change your mind because it's inappropriate, it's rude, it's bad, it's whatever, right? Okay. All right. Uh, Steph, I work with developmentally disabled adults. How would they be cared for in an ANCAP society? Many of them are low-functioning. So... It's a basic question you need to ask yourself. Do people care about the unfortunate? And developmentally disabled, developmentally handicapped people, very tragic, very unfortunate. Now, some of them, of course, like Sid Barrett, early Pink Floyd, uh, fried their brains with too much LSD and developed a kind of whacked out post-drug schizophrenia and complete like that's not unfortunate that's just like i'm sorry about your childhood was so bad that you ended up wanting an alternative reality 
and you know when when Roger Waters is like, dude, that's too many drugs. It's like that's like Napoleon Bonap. Uh, it's like Napoleon Dynamite saying you're a little nerdy. So, do people care about the unfortunate? Well, of course they do. Because the mo- like, let's say you were to run on a platform of, well, we're going to remove all financial supports for the unfortunate, the disabled, and so on, right? People would go nuts. They'd lose their mind. People care about the less fortunate. People care about those who, through no fault of their own, have ended up being dependent on the kindness of others, right? So the way that you would work it in a free society, it's pretty easy to guess, although I don't know for sure, of course, it's a future free society, but it would go something like this. So when you got pregnant, you would buy insurance against some sort of birth defect, against Down syndrome, against whatever it was, right? You would buy insurance regarding that, and it would be, you know, you would, you would, maybe there'd be genetic testing to test your rates of insurance, which would give you pretty good information about your risk. And you would simply get insurance. And then if it turned out that your child was developmentally delayed or if it turned out that your child had Down syndrome and so on, then those costs would be paid for by the insurance company, right? That would be your, your thing, right? So that would be the case. Now, let's say somebody doesn't buy insurance and they end up with a developmentally handicapped child. Well, they have a challenge, right? Which is, you know, if you don't buy house insurance and your house burns down, you're out one house if you don't buy fire insurance, right? And so, unfortunately, you can't just pay everyone regardless of whether they take insurance or not. Otherwise, nobody will take insurance. So, of course, the problem is that the choices of the adults let's say it's Down syndrome, right? So the choice of the adults to not get insurance to save a couple of hundred bucks or whatever it would be, the choice of that is now impacting the child with Down syndrome. So it's not the child's fault that the parents were irresponsible and didn't get the insurance. And maybe the parents are poor, maybe the parents are broke or whatever. But what you need to understand, of course, is that in a free society, in about one generation, at a bare minimum, 25, 27 years, in about one generation, we'll have about five times the wealth. I'm not kidding about that. Instead of the average income being $40,000, it's going to be $200,000. And no tax, right? So you make $50,000, you get to keep maybe 30, 35,000 of it. After all of your taxes, you maybe get to keep 30,000 of it. Not counting all of the national debt stuff, which is a crater under your house that's going to swallow it whole. So you're going to go from $30,000 to $200,000. Well, how do I know that? Well, if you just take something as simple as this, right? So if you take something as simple as, let's say that the Federal Registry of, of, uh, in America of regulations had stayed the same after the Second World War to the present day. If that had been the case, the average income would be about $250,000. By $250,000. Average, average income, median, right in the middle, $250,000. Now, with $250,000, or let's just say $200,000, with $200,000, and so that's a bare minimum. Even if government regulation had just remained the way it was in this, after the Second World War, when it wasn't a completely unregulated Wild West of liberty, and we know this because they've tracked the drag on the I think it was about 2% a year drag on the rise in the GDP based on these excessive or increased regulations post-Second World War. And so it works out to, uh, I did the math a couple of years ago for a show, $200,000, $250,000 would be your average income. 
So with your average income at $200,000 and no tax, right? So now you'd have to earn three or $400,000 to get that kind of money. So average income, average income, $200,000. Would people be able to pay and support the very small number of people who were born with birth defects where the parents had not bought any insurance? Well, of course they would. Be very happy to help. And it would be helping in a sustainable way. So, yes, of course, the people, people would be taken care of. But it's tough, man. It's tough taking care of people. Hit me with a why. If you've ever tried to help someone, it'd be completely screwed at the process. Uh, ha, why? <laughs> it's happened on multiple occasions. So, yes, of course, people, people care about the unfortunate people who are born with various handicaps that may make them economically largely unproductive. Although there are people who have significant intellectual handicaps or challenges, uh, they can do jobs, they can work, they can, uh, you know, even if it's pushing a broom or something like that, they can do something that makes them feel productive and part of society and so on. So yeah, charity would be absolutely more than completely and totally enough because you, you, we're, we're living on, on, on crumbs, you know, we're living on dregs, we're living on leftovers, we're living on stuff that falls from the table. You have no idea how wealthy human beings would be within a generation and it would just go straight up from where we are so do we own anything or does the government own us hmm well we own ourselves still how do i break out of a cycle of endless misery yeah i'm going to need some more details i don't want to give you a speech that doesn't touch any of your specifics In Austria, the Communist Party won the election. They are literally called Communist Party Austria. Well, I guess the Austrians are going to have to learn. Hey, Steph, are people who suppress their emotions more likely to have a strong emotional feeling triggered by something that jogs their memory? Oh, yeah. See, if you, you lock the emotions in the basement and, you know, it's kind of... I'll give you a little piece of emotional advice here. So... When you feel like you're in an emergency situation, you generally will suppress your emotions. Now, to suppress your emotions is to say it's not appropriate for me to feel as strongly emotional now, like in the moment, right? That's suppression, and that's, you know, fine. It's part of maturity, right? Repression is when that becomes a permanent state. Now, the longer a state of emergency stretches out in your mind, the more likely suppression, which is okay, can turn to repression, which is not good for you at all. Repression is when your emotions are just your enemies in a way, right? And uh, I did a show just recently about this. Uh, you can find it uh, in the podcast feed or freedomain.locals.com or, you know, you can go to freedomain.com forward slash connect and all the different places you can find the shows. So suppression is fine. Repression is is not good right suppression is like oh i have a toothache so i'll take a painkiller while i get to the dentist that's suppression right repression is i'll just keep taking painkillers and not go to the dentist and that's not good so if you have repressed your emotions they're always clamoring to come out because your emotions are there to help you they're there to keep you safe they're there to help you identify evil they're there to bring loved ones closer to you they're there to keep hostile and dangerous people at bay, your emotions are there to help you, just the same way as physical pain and physical pleasure are there to help you. And so suppressing your emotions puts you in a grave state of danger. 
in the same way that if you had a body, like let's say you had leprosy and you had to do what they call a VSE, a visual search of extremities, thanks, Donaldson, then you wouldn't have any idea if you'd been stung by a bee. You wouldn't have any idea if you had cut yourself. You wouldn't have any idea if you were, like, you'd have to keep checking because, you know, ah, right? Like the moles, right? You have to check for moles once in a while. So if you cut yourself off from your emotional content, you live a dead, wooden, vaguely depressed, unemotional life. You know, like some people report on SSRIs are just emotion, just kind of flat lines for them. So don't do that. But the problem is that the COVID thing has become a state of emergency where people have gone from suppression to repression. And then what will happen is the emotions will just bust out of you at some point. And then what will happen is you'll be more tempted to go back to repressing them, right? Like, like you're, you're, you're trying to hold some wild animal at bay. You can't let it go because it's going to go for your throat. So the more you push down your emotions, the more they'll erupt in strange and inappropriate times, and the more they'll startle and scare you because you'll go from zero to 100 in terms of emotional intensity, and then you'll be like, whoa, that's like touching a live wire. It's like sticking a fork in a socket. I got to stay away from these emotions. They're crazy. And it's like, no, no, no. That's just what happens. You know, don't, don't, <laughs> don't do to your emotions what Australia does to its citizens because rebellion is not pretty in this situation. So, All right. But do they care enough? I can't help but think that there wouldn't be enough support. I don't... I'm just like, do you think people are just like mean and unkind and would just step over somebody with Down syndrome starving to death in the gutter? You really think so? I don't know what kind of people you're surrounded by. But here's the thing, right? So this is one. If you... Don't be passive, right? Don't, don't look at a society because we're kind of used to this. People say, oh, the Australians, they did it to themselves. It's like, no, they didn't. It was done to them by the government and the media, right? But if you are concerned, I'm just, please stop being passive. And, and passivity just comes washing off these comments. <gasps> what if people don't care enough? I'm sorry to mock you, but it just it's so annoying to me. To me. And I, I, I say this annoyance with love and, and, and care and, and really want to shake you. I mean, shake you off of this numbness and this, this dissociation and this deadness of opportunity. And when I tell you what I'm about to tell you, you will understand why, the, why I totally come out of a loving place with regards to this. Okay. This is why it's annoying as hell to me about this kind of talk. Imagine if in 2004, 2005, I'd have said, oh, I don't, I don't know. Does the world really care much about philosophy? I don't know that the world really understands that philosophy can help you in your life. I don't think that people really understand the productivity of thinking about ethics and virtue and truth and government and politics and epistemology and metaphysics and, and, and ethics, and, right? And just saying, I don't know. I mean, what if I, I didn't? That's passive. It's dead-eyed. It's dead-souled. I'm not saying you have a dead soul. I'm saying that is a dead soul activity. Because here's what you need to do in your life. Oh, man, shake this off. Shake off this mantle, this dead gray cloak of helplessness. Oh, I hope I cross my fingers. I hope that people will be nice to people with developmental handicaps in the future. No. You care about it. Listen to me. You care about it. You make it happen. You make it happen. I didn't just sit there and type into chat windows, well, what if people don't care enough about philosophy? I just basically grabbed the world by the neck slash balls and said, care about philosophy. Care about philosophy. Care! 
I'll make you. <laughs> I'll dance, I'll sing, I'll make jokes, I'll twirl, I'll make funny voices, I'll pull funny expressions, I'll go ha-la-la-la on a regular basis. People are still trying to figure out how to spell that in various forums. Just make it happen. If in the future you don't feel that people are caring enough, you don't just sit there passively and say, well, I'm worried and I'm vaguely concerned that people aren't going to care enough about people like you. Make them care. In the future, if people aren't caring enough about the underprivileged, you go out there, you make a documentary, you get on shows, you make people care, bring their attention. Don't be passive. Don't be passive. Don't just sit and worry about things in the future because that means you're saying you are not there in the future. You're dead in the future. You're in another dimension. You're gone. You're paralyzed. You're locked underground. No, you'll be there if you care and other people don't and it's important. Make them care. Make them care. Make it happen because you're looking at the future like you're not there. That's not good for you. It's terrible for you. The future isn't something that you watch like a movie. It's something you're in. It's not a script. It's improv. If something is not going to your satisfaction in the future, you don't just sit there and sigh and say, well, I guess we can't have freedom because people don't care enough. If you care, you'll make it happen. If you won't make it happen, don't expect me to care. Don't expect the indifferent to a problem to get more interested in solving that problem than you are yourself. If you don't care enough to make people care about what you care about, don't complain about people not caring because the most uncaring is you. I care about philosophy enormously. I care about philosophy more than I care about life because life without philosophy is barely existing. So I went out into the world. I stood astride the planet and I bellowed my barbaric yawp from the rooftops of the planet. Because I don't sit there and sigh and bite my nails and fret about whether people care about philosophy. If I care about philosophy... I will, <laughs> like the Kool-Aid jug, smash through walls to raise people's interest in philosophy. Get people interested in philosophy. Show its value. Show its power. Show its depth. Show that it is the only avenue to happiness that we know in this life. Well, what if in the future people don't really care about philosophy? What if? So you're, you're putting out, it's concern trolling. Because it's just fear, uncertainty, doubt. Well, you can't prove to me that people are going to care enough 100 years from now or 50 years from now to take care of the poor, little, little, right? or the developmentally handicapped or disabled. You can't prove to me that. It's, you understand you're just throwing things in the way for nothing. You're just stalling the progress of the planet by putting vague shit in people's way. If you care about it, trust yourself enough that you will make it happen if it needs to happen. You get off your ass and stop typing and complaining and worrying and fretting and stopping everyone that's so feminine. And the worst caricature of femininity, which is to worry and nag and complain and sow fear, uncertainty and doubt in people without getting off your ass to make something happen. What are you doing right now to help the people you claim to care about so much? Maybe you're doing a lot. 
Okay, but if you're doing a lot, then know that you'll be able to do that in the future. And if you're dead by then, other people will do it in the future. People care. And if something's important and other people don't care about it, they'll make them care about it by taking action in the world. God. I say this again, massive love and respect. I, I care that you care about these things. I think it's great that you care about these things. But don't just type shit into an online forum saying, well, what if people don't care? And I have doubts that people will care. And I don't, oh, if you don't care enough to trust that you're going to do something about it, get out of our way right now. All right. How can you justify empiricism without being circular or appealing to non-empirical arguments? which would contradict empiricism. So empiricism is the idea that there is a tangible external reality which is independent of our consciousness, which we refer to when we talk about objective truth. Right? So how do you justify empiricism? How are you hearing my arguments? The arguments are going from this microphone, across the wires, across the land, <laughs> come into your speakers, your headphones, into your ears. It's all empiricism. I can't argue against empiricism without using empiricism because you will never, ever get my arguments except through one of your senses. Could be braille, could be touch, could be hearing, could be sight if I'm typing it, could be, I could be tracing it on your tongue with whatever I happen to have close by. So you can't argue against empiricism without deploying the objective physical properties of sound and vision and touch that exist independent of human consciousness. Sound waves operate independent of human consciousness. Light waves operate independent of human consciousness. So you can't argue against empiricism without deploying one of the senses to communicate your argument through an objective universal medium like light or sound or touch so you can't argue against empiricism <laughs> without using empiricism. These are the self-detonating arguments that I've been talking about low these many years. All right. I haven't been following the Gag Gabby Petito case. It seems that her fiancé was a sociopath, but she hit him many times, apparently. Yeah. Sorry. Always wanted to see you and Matt Dillahunty debate Christianity's benefit to the West from atheist perspectives. So atheists have the moral courage of your average sea sponge, which is kind of an insult to a sea sponge, which is not supposed to have any moral courage at all. So Christians, even after my big slander, lies, deplatforming stuff, Christians are like, yeah, come on my show. Come and speak at the conferences in St. Louis. Come, come. Absolutely, you're welcome. Big open tent. Uh, atheists. <laughs> big ass step back. Oh, no. People told lies about him. Um, yeah, they just, so Matt Dillahunty, I'm sure he's a fine guy, but there's no way in hell he's having me on his show because he doesn't have the moral courage and all of that. So, all right. Father tried to pull me into the master-slave dynamic I read from RTR. I'm so proud of you. I've failed you. Thank you for your books. You're very welcome. I hope that you uh, uh, enjoy them. All right. Steph, do you have any advice on raising a really high IQ child? I have an astute three-year-old that can read almost anything. 
well, I assume that the IQ comes from somewhere. And, you know, I know that there's, you know, people of average IQ, like people with high IQ have children usually a little lower. People below average IQ have children a little higher. So the white average is 100, as you know. High IQ child, just be engaging, be curious, and let them take the lead. My daughter has interests that I would never have imagined in a million years as being part of my interests. She's very good at them. Uh, and I just, you have to step into that world. <laughs> I read something, it was rather scathing, but actually if you're a parent, you'll know it from time to time, right? So the parent was writing and said, you know, my my 12-year-old was complaining that he's so bored, he's going to die of boredom. And I said to him, it's impossible to die of boredom. And he said, well, how do you know? He said, I've listened to you talk about Minecraft for five years, haven't I? <laughs> it's a little tiny bit true from time to time. But my daughter is into particular books, and she will really go hard into that world. She will go into that world, and I will read the books, and I will understand what's going on in that world so that we can have conversations about it. She likes um, uh, the online, you know, um, one character is a good guy, or and one character is a bad, a bunch of characters are bad guys, and there's murders, so to speak, and like the Among Us kind of stuff, and Goose Goose Duck and so on. So she likes those games a lot. Not my particular cup of tea. I'm more of a demon fragon kind of guy. Or chess. But you got to get into those worlds. Got to figure out what she's into. You know, she really got into drawing. So she would give me drawing lessons. And I would take those drawing lessons with a big smile. And I really do did appreciate, uh, I do appreciate those, those drawing lessons. She is um, just very skilled and, and talented at animation. So she's, she's, scripted and, and storyboarded and directed and, and animated herself like entire movies that are just amazing to me. And you get into those movies, you talk about the plot, what works, what may be better, you know, and, and all of that. So you just, you let your children lead you in, into their worlds. And if that world is Minecraft, maybe you're not a Minecraft guy. I don't really get it, but okay, it's one of the worlds. It's the most popular game in the world these days, so... Okay, so I go into Minecraft, and I let my daughter, she knows it, she leads me along, and, and she, I follow her, and she teaches me. So let your children take the lead. I was reading this article about this woman who posted that, uh, yeah, I, I made my kids eat Skittles. So whenever my kids wanted candy, I'd give them these Skittles, and they'd say, oh, these, these are terrible. I don't like these Skittles. And she'd say, hey, if you want candy, this is all the candy you're getting. If you don't get this candy, you get no candy because you're so ungrateful for me giving you candy. It turns out there was something called zombie Skittles, which apparently tastes like either A, rotting flesh, or B, 14 soiled diapers in a garbage bag. So that's an example of not listening to your kids, not letting them lead you, not being curious. So, All right. Let's see here. Could it not be said it's the fault of Australians that their government slash media is as strong as it is? Um, yeah, I mean, no, sorry, I don't mean to brush off that question. I mean, that, that's a very, very important question. I would say that certainly since the onset of, of widely available internet, uh, people believing the mainstream narrative are much more at fault. So I think that's a, that's a good good redirect on that on that point. Let's see here. A lot of elderly people support lockdowns because they are scared of the virus. Yeah, for sure. You you can't have a life because people who are eighty three could die, 
when the average lifespan is 82. I don't know. See, I mean, that's a big question, right? It's a big question. And, and of course, the Christians have an answer, which is to, to die is to rejoin uh, Jesus in heaven. So it's not something to be feared. I don't know. See, I mean, 55, you know, you do start to get a bit of a whiff of your own mortality, not to mention having cancer. But I don't know. When I'm 80, will I be desperate for every extra minute? I don't know. I don't know. Will I say, okay, I'll take some risks. That could go badly. But if you don't take any risks, you're not really alive. And a good chunk of our consciousness is designed to measure risk and figure out risk reward. So no risk is no humanity. No risk is no depth. No risk is no philosophy. And all life, as you know, is risk and loss. All life is risk and loss. You know, I was just uh, today, I was um, sitting across from my wife. We were chatting and the thought pops into my head, as I think it does for everyone from time to time, that, you know, one day one of us isn't going to be here. She's gone. She's looking at an empty chair that will never be filled. Never be filled. I don't know, maybe we'll both die at the same time. <laughs> but, and, and most likely she'll be looking at my empty chair because women live longer than men. And all the love that we have, 20 years and counting of just being the greatest people in each other's lives and having this amazing, amazing cathedral of love that we inhabit that I'm very blessed and have worked hard to achieve, but I, it's still accidental to some degree that I met such the right person for me. She's perfect for me. She's perfect for me, and I'm perfect for her. And... All of the love that we have, that we share, everything that we treasure has an hourglass to it, right? There's sand running through it. Everything that we treasure. Everyone we love, we're going to lose. Or they're going to lose us or we lose each other. You say, ah, oh, well, you know, well, maybe I just won't fall in love so I won't get hurt. Well, that hurts even more. To lose is life. You don't risk, you don't gamble, you don't invest, you don't attach, you don't treasure. You know, time snatches every beautiful thing from our hands and turns it to dust, ash, nothing. That's what time does. We're only here because we replaced everyone who came before. Everyone. Who came? We were standing on mountains of dust, mountains of ash. We're on a ladder of sarcophagi. So I don't know. When I get old, 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 I saw some video, some joke video. It's kind of like a joke video where the woman was like, she's blowing out the candles on her cake. She's really old, right? And they're like, yay, you're 87. And she's like, ugh. I hope there's not one more year. A little dark. But I don't know when I get into my 80s. Am I going to be like, 
I would sacrifice the world for one more day. I... I'd like to think, I'd like to think that if I've lived a good, honest, honorable life, contributed good to the world, stood up against evil, advanced the cause of virtue. You know, I did this rough calculation the other day in a show that I and you have stopped about a billion assaults upon children since this show began. About one billion assaults on children have been prevented by this show. Not to mention how many, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of circumcisions and, and so on, right? So I don't know that I can live a better life than what I'm doing. I don't know how. I don't know how. I mean, if I knew how, I'd be doing that, right? I think I've lived about as maximum a good life as possible without getting full socrates right? So I don't know. I mean, at the end of my life, I sort of look forward down the tunnel of time and say, okay, like at some point you get into bed and you don't get out again, right? The hospital bed, maybe you get into bed and the doctor basically looks at you and says, yeah, it's sorry, it's just a matter of time now. Your organs are shutting down, whatever it is. Right now, uh, I would sacrifice what for another day to be in an old creaky body with no future? I don't know. My mind is never going to be as good as it was in my late 20s. My body's never going to be as good as it was when it was 18. I'm buoyed up by lots of exercise and eating well and maintaining a healthy weight. I was reading the other day that if you can't fit into your high school genes, you're a significant risk for diabetes. I do, actually, I do keep one old pair of jeans around to just check, right, how I'm doing. And actually, they're loose on me now. So anyway, so I don't know. What do you guys think when you get old? Will death come as a true and deep horror that you would do anything to escape? In other words, let's say you're old, you're 75 or 80. And somebody sits in front of you and gives you a choice. And they say, look, you can go on a cruise with your friends. But there's like a 1% to 2% chance you might get sick and die. It's a two-month cruise. You go through the Aegean. You go through Mediterranean. You go up the coast of Spain. You go. It's a beautiful cruise. And let's say you, you know, you're moving around enough to go, right? You say, well, you can go on this cruise, but there's a 1% to 2% chance you might die. Or maybe it's a 5% chance that you might die. Because, you know, there's an illness, a virus. Could get it. Or, or you don't go on the cruise. You stay in this little room and you double your chances of living. Right, so instead of a 2% chance that you're going to die, there's just a 1% chance that you're going to die just from old age in this room. I'd like to think, and I, I believe this will be the case. I'd like to think I'd say, suit me up, sailor, I'm going on a cruise. Why would you want to just to maybe have a couple of extra months? Why would you want to just sit in a room? Why? That's not how we got here. That's not how we got to be the apex predators, top of the food chain. To live is to risk. And some risks pay off and some of them don't, but that's life, man. You know, as I get older 
And at some point, your body's just like, yeah, I mean, A, I'm not going to inform you when you pull the muscle, and B, I'm going to make it hurt for a month. <laughs> right now, it's better. I use these massage guns to sort of pound it off. I was racing with my daughter, uh, climbing these, you know, these, um, they look like big giant spider webs, but they're made of ropes, and they're in playgrounds. And so, like, I don't know, 10, 20 times or whatever, 10 or 20 times, we just raced to the very top of it. And it was pretty high, right? And I was like, oh, my butt muscles, my glutes, they were uh, a little throbby the next day, right? They didn't give me any complaints at the time, but we just went back and did it again today. But so, you know, you just get kind of creaky, you get kind of old. So everything I do is a risk now in a way that it wasn't before, right? If I, if I play tennis with my wife, we go play tennis. If I play too hard, I might ache. Why? That's new. Just happens, right? So you get 55, right? Does that mean I'm not going to go play tennis? No. Because if I don't go play tennis, maybe I get fat, maybe I have a heart attack, maybe I get diabetes, whatever. There's no risk-free situation. So I'd like to think, okay, if my chance is a double of death, if I go on the cruise, I'm going on the cruise. I'm going, I'm going to live, I'm going to live, I'm going to live. Because there is no risk-free existence. We know this, right? But it's just important to clarify it and, and, and speak that truth really importantly. Because if you don't go on the cruise, you have regret. You got the frost on your windows, the bare trees outside, a cold sky, blowing snow, you're stuck in your room, you're bored, you're frustrated, and regret is eating away at you. You say, yes, but at least I didn't go on the cruise where I could risk dying. It's like now you're being eaten alive by regret. <laughs> Haven't solved the problem. I don't know. I suspect, from my still relatively middle-aged vantage point, I suspect that the people who are least comfortable with risk when they're old are the people who've risked the least and who have regrets. I think regrets make you afraid of death. I do. Because let's say that you weren't great to your kids and they have complaints against you and then maybe they've talked about them and you've just kind of brushed them off or, you know, I did the best I could and stopped being so petty and it was the times and blah, 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 right? Oh, I guess I, I guess I was a bad parent or whatever, right? Let's say you've just kind of brushed aside their concerns. Well, what happens, of course, is that you have regret about that. But as long as there's a future, as long as there's a future down the road, you can have this fantasy, and it usually is a fantasy, you can have this fantasy that you'll fix it. One day you'll call, you'll never know just how much I love you. You'll never know just how much I care. If there was some other way to tell you I love you, I swear I don't know how. You'll never know if you don't know now. Everybody's got this belief, just I'll fix it. And then they throw this solution, this, this better behavior, just down the road, down the road. And they just kind of blank it out and 
suppress it and it's in the nowhere land of someday. And then I think when they see that blank black wall approaching, they freak out. I'm, uh, I'm not ready. I haven't done the right things yet. I haven't fixed it. I'm not ready. And I think they're terrified of death because death demands that they fix it before they go. That they fix it before they go. But if they fix it, oh man, that's brutal. Why don't people fix things before they die? They don't. They don't. They don't. Why not? I'll tell you why. It's also why they fear death so much. They don't fix things before they die because if you've spent 30 to 80, 50 years not being super nice to your kids and then you finally act nicely towards them when you're 80, the amount of regret you'll have about the previous half century will eat you head to toe. You'll be consumed. The level of regret that you'd have for acting well, for acting better, for acting morally. The longer you act in an immature and immoral fashion, petty, vindictive, avoidant, the longer you act, the less likely you are to fix it. Because then the more regret you'll have about all of the years or decades that you acted badly for, which is why you don't hope for turnarounds from old people who've treated you badly. You don't hope for it. I mean, you can hope for it if you want, but you're going to be disappointed. Guaranteed. And I've talked to enough people with old parents, and my father died last year, and my mother is very old, may in fact be dead for all I know, but I doubt it. I probably would have heard about that. And did my father reach out and fix things? Nope. He died in a hospital. I assume he had some time before he died. I assume he knew that there was a big risk or at some point he knew he was going to die. Didn't reach out, didn't call, didn't fix things. Why? Because then he'd sit there and say, oh, gosh, my son is 54. I spent more than a half century not being a good father. Trying to turn it around at the end would be way too much regret and pain. Way too much. Instead, he let, I assume he approved these things ahead of time, instead he let everyone in my family be listed with the one exception. I mean, my daughter was listed. Everyone in my family was listed with the one exception. My wife was not listed. She was conspicuously absent, and that's not by accident. Now, you can be a jerk from beyond the grave. Really. So, that's a big question. How are you going to face down the reaper. How are you going to face down the dude with the scythe who's going to cut the strings that bind you to life? Or when one of my um, characters, my main character was dying in one of my novels, I said, and it was, it remained to be seen whether she floated up to a perfect choir of angels or fell down to a flat mattress of wet meat. Just dead. So I think that the, the fear of death and the desire for one more day it is, uh, is the desire to avoid confronting the death that will end your pettiness and that you will have lived and died a petty and vindictive person, a waster of all that is holy and beautiful in human existence, a minor curse and plaguelet upon the world. 
someone who diminished rather than enhanced, somebody who insulted rather than elevated, someone who demanded rather than provided. Can't turn that around at the end. But that wall coming is like, holy shit, I'm going to die as petty as I lived. Oh my God. There is no magic glowing fingered intervention that moves the chessboard of my minuscule pettiness to anything other than a checkmate and a loss. And I think, I do think, I do think that when people get old, if they've lived poorly, pettily, meanly, how, how, do, how do you stay mean? How do you stay petty? How do, how do you not... How do you not turn it around? How do you not... If I've acted in a way that is not to my standards, I mean, it, it's like a thorn in my brain. Like, I, I have to fix it. I have to call the person. I have to apologize. I have to fix it. I don't know how people stay mean, stay petty, stay vindictive, stay insulting, stay abusive. Stay, I don't know. But I think that there is this desperate sense when they get near the end, this panic. Because I think people stay petty because they keep pushing forward in time the moment they grow up and take responsibility. And that's what the devil would want, right? The devil would want you to say, oh, you don't have to fix it now, you can fix it tomorrow. Ah, don't bother with it now. Relax and watch the movie. You, yeah, fix it later, fix it later. Just do later, fix it later. Don't worry about it right now. You've earned some relax. You've earned some downtime. Put your feet up. Have some chips. Let them fix it. Let them know you're always fixing it. Just do it later. Do it later. To Push it off. Push it off. Procrastinate. Procrastinate. And then that wall, right? That wall comes up. And you realize that you've put off any kind of decency any kind of elevated, better, moral, productive, helpful behavior. You've put that off and put that off. And now, you're out of time. You're done. And the devil distracted you into being a shitheel your whole life long. friend of mine many years ago this is really really important there were two things one is that i saw these two old women on a bus one was 80 one was maybe 65 and they were just it was mother and daughter they were just bickering and snarking and you did this and that's the wrong handbag and i told you to bring a coat and just ing, 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 ing. i'm like holy shit you can be old as fuck and still a retarded toddler You can look like an overtanned, shrunken-ass raisin and still have eternal petty temper tantrums. And that was chilling as hell. Because we grow whether we're mature or not. We go through puberty whether we're emotionally mature, self-actualized, honest, virtuous. 
We can have kids, whether we're virtuous or not. We can have a job, often, whether we're virtuous or not. In fact, sometimes the less virtuous, the better job. Politics. But emotional maturity, I mean, you, you can still be like a petty, ridiculous toddler moving the levers of a giant, wrinkled human frame until you just pitch straight into the great beyond. Take the six-foot dirt nap with roses on top forever. That was number one. Number two was a guy I knew who got married and his mom was just, he was, his parents had separated and he hadn't seen his mom much because she was just a real witch with a capital B. And he was getting married and he'd said to his mom, like, you can't come because you're just causing so much trouble. And then she showed up with a couple of mean friends and just disrupted the whole ceremony and caused a real scene and, and just yelled at people and just ruined his marriage day, just ruined it. And she was maybe mid-60s, late 60s at that point, just gathered her little friends together and came in with that tight-lipped, unlaid, Karen, genocide of happiness energy. Thinking, my God, you can be in your late 60s and you can still be a total bunt. I haven't seen my mother close to a quarter century, close to a quarter century. She's going to die. She's going to go into the ground. She's not going to turn it around. She's not going to fix things. She's it's too much of a loss. It's too much of a loss. to, to So why is it that people are so desperate to cling on to extra life, even if it's just locked in a room, not seeing anyone, sometimes locked from the outside, I think that they're desperately avoiding death because they've desperately avoided virtue. I think they can't stand. See, the thing is, oh, well, you know, it's not that you're afraid of dying. It's just you were afraid of living. It's like, no, it's not that. Death is when the bill comes due. Right? All, everyone's dependent on the government. COVID is when the bill comes due, Right? I think, I mean, a, a lot of life is preparing for a, a good death. Not a huge amount, but a lot of life is preparing for a good death. And people don't seem to have very good deaths. And I think that life flashing before you, and you will never be the, like, if you haven't become the person you want to be, it's never going to happen when you're old. It's too late. Because if you become the person you want to be when you're old, and 90% of your life is behind you, you look back at that 90% and say, I fucking wasted it. Holy shit. I married the wrong person. I raised my kids the wrong way. I was petty, self-righteous, vindictive, judgmental. Narcissistic, self-aggrandizing. Never admitted that I was wrong. Pride. Vanity, insecurity. I never became the person that I wanted to be. And now that the final infinite bill is coming due, I realize 
there's no chance for me to ever become the person I want to be. So I don't know, man. Why are they clinging so much to another day? Because it's too late to apologize. And death is going to come and take them in their petty alien form. All right, sorry, I got a lot to catch up with. All right, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, Dickie D, man. And he says that, uh, yeah, pedophilia wasn't so bad. <laughs> Not as bad as Vosh, though. Oh, my God. Uh, sorry, let me... I'm just going to go down to the bottom and read up. Is it 75%? of Australians approve of the lockdown? Is that right? Wow. The one Steph stream I catch live and we deep dive into my grave. I outgrew my patient parents emotionally at a very young age and it's painful trying to get through to them about anything. Why try? You're not there to spend your life wandering the graveyard attempting to resuscitate the dead. Um, yeah, when you're raised by petty parents, immature parents, you, you, one day you just look at them and you say, I outgrew you at the age of three. And then you got another 15 years <laughs> of trying to navigate this. And of course, the other thing too, when people act in petty, vindictive, abusive manners, when you look at them with an honest, rational, objective assessment of exactly who they are, they blow up, and they just hit the roof. When you look at somebody you don't respect, and that's clear in your clear vision of them, and they can see this because they look in the mirror. My mom's very pretty, right? Very beautiful. So... They look in the mirror, they see this beautiful person, they look in the mirror of your eyes, and they see Gollum at best. And they know that that's how they see themselves deep down. They rebel against your honest assessment because they rebel against their honest assessment. So you got to hide. You got to hide. You just got to hide. You got to hide everything you think, everything you evaluate, everything you judge, everything you know about the pettiness of the people around you. You gotta hide, hide, hide. <sighs> All right. 
Stefan, you were very harsh to religion in the past. Do you stand by any of your arguments from that period or no? Um, harsh is a girl's argument. That's harsh. It's like, things are true or false, like in the realm of philosophy. Harsh is for sandpaper and hurt feelings on Valentine's Day. Harsh is not for philosophy. So, yes, I pointed out inconsistencies and logical contradictions in religion. Absolutely. And I felt that the atheists were rational and rejected counter-rational arguments. And then, when I made arguments against the cult of atheism, which is the state, I wrote a book called The God of Atheists. The God of Atheists is Vanity and Violence. Atheists reject religion 99 times out of 100. In my experience, atheists reject religion because they don't want moral standards that they're accountable to. They reject religion not because of God, but because of universal morality. In the same way that a lot of libertarians reject the state because they want to pursue hedonism rather than responsibility and adulthood and the limiting of appetite that characterizes wisdom. So I criticized religion for its inconsistencies. And the people who cheered me on the criticism of religion, I, in my naivete, assumed were more rational. But there is no greater rejection of rationality than the rejection of universal morality, which I have proved with universally preferable behavior, a rational proof of secular ethics. You can get it for free, as it has always been free. In the 13 years since I wrote it, it's always been free. You can get it at freedomain.com forward slash books. So, the atheists swallow up the mainstream narrative. The atheists focus on socialism and worship of the state. The atheists wish to escape the burden of being human by being livestock to the tax farmers of the state. Because the livestock can eat and rut and moo and reproduce, although atheists don't seem to do much of that either. So do I stand by my arguments from that period or no? I, the arguments are not for me to stand by or not stand by. The arguments are valid or invalid. They're true or they're false, correct or incorrect. It's not up to me to stand by them. If they're disproven, I will reject them. If they're not disproven and they continue to be consistent and valid, I will accept them. But harsh, it's like the word bashing, you know, where you just, you Christ, Christian bashed or you're just bashing someone. It's not a, it's like a, a manipulation that would be obvious in a three-year-old. What's the deal with Richard Dawkins? Well, he's a scientist, so he's owned by the state. Science is owned by the state. Follow the science. 
Que bono, follow the money. Who benefits? I don't think too many Christians were working on gain-of-function research with coronaviruses. Pretty sure that wasn't happening. Those would be the atheists. And atheism is a weapon used by the left to destroy the universal morality of Christianity. Now, was I part of that attack? I certainly was. Did I provide a rational secular alternative to, universe, to the universal values of religion? I absolutely did. First time in the history of philosophy, the rational proof of secular ethics that required neither the authoritarianism of the state nor the authority of God. And of course, as I've said before, I turned around and said to Christians, you're wrong. And I turned around and said to atheists, here's how to be right. And the Christians accepted me and loved me, and the atheists scorned me and abandoned me. <laughs> when I thought I was giving them the greatest gift that they always wanted. Rational proof of secular ethics. Boom. Done. Rape, theft, assault, murder. Boom. Done. But. 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 Three asses in a row. <laughs> but, but, but. Well, 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 three holes in the ground. So, the rational atheists, when confronted with an argument that went against the superstition of the state, ran. While daring to call Christians cultists. No, no, no. What is your opinion of Christopher Hitchens? He was a useful hack for the left as a whole. Anybody who was pro-Iraq war. And he, um, even after he found out the truth, just a useful hack and a tool. Everyone is an atheist until the state god starts offering free stuff. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Like how some people pretend to love the poor when really they just hate the rich. Yeah, well, they hate the rich because they're stuck in the superstition of exploitation. Right? The rich and poor, it's IQ. IQ and meritocracy. Free market and IQ, that's rich and poor. And there's free, free will, and I get all of that, but IQ is the only alternative argument to the superstition of exploitation, that everyone who's rich has exploited everyone else, and it's unjust, and you've got to take it back, and all that, right? It's projection. It's the government generally and genuinely exploits people and takes what it has not earned and robs. So the government, of course, wants to get people to look at the rich, not the politically powerful. The rich, ah, oh, the rich, they have taken your stuff, and that's why India is poor. <laughs> the West only became rich because they stole uh, modern science and the free market from India. Sure they did. Um, so hatred of the rich is the superstition that arises from the cult of exploitation, rather than the science of IQ. Mooing is better than rutting. You should see what the video that the Polish government played against mass immigration. Holy crap. Atheists don't even have a skin in the game with regards to their desires for the future, having one or zero kids on average. Yeah. All right. 
You mentioned uploading sections of these streams in the past. That speech on mortality and regret would be a good candidate, in my opinion. Thank you. I appreciate that. It certainly hit me hard in the feels. So I hope that came across. It's always hard to know what comes across exactly on these things. But uh, in general, I think if I feel it and I'm honest about the expression, it comes across. So hopefully that did. All right. Any other last questions or comments or issues? I will wait for a moment for everything to catch up. Just got here. Hope I'm not too late for Steph's buttery voice. Yes, I'm afraid you might be. The universe itself is conscious. It permeates every particle in existence. <laughs> what a load of crap, Jack. I'm sorry. The universe itself is conscious. It permeates. Uh, yeah, I heard that speech from Yoda, and it didn't make any more sense then either. Thoughts on fortunes? They make good cookies, I guess. I feel ashamed that I can't think of any good questions to ask you, Steph. Why would you feel ashamed? Why would you feel ashamed? Nothing wrong with that. If family supports passports, is it okay to stop talking to them? What do you guys think of the Novavax? Just out of curiosity. Have you looked into this Novavax? It's, I think, is that the only non-mRNA vaccine that's out there? Uh, I know the J&J &J one's a little bit different from Pfizer and Moderna, but I think that the Novavax one is the one that's been used since the 80s. Uh, um, it's closer to the dead virus stimulating a response. Which religions is it okay to insult? Well, it's not okay to insult any religions. You can make arguments against the belief system, but just insulting is low-rent, uh, na-na-na-na-boo-boo stuff, right? People are afraid of death because they're actually in love with the lies of this place and just the attachment to the stories of this place. I guess that passes for deep when you're stoned. You're storing up treasures in heaven, Steph. Well, that's the big thing, right? That I could live the rest of my life with the rest of eternity with my wife would be beautiful. I've not heard much about it. The Russian vax has been disqualified from the passports. <sighs> yeah, like Russia is like the Molyneux of the world, right? I mean, just lied about and slandered all the time, right? Novavax. No, it's not available yet, but it seems to be pretty good in terms of uh, dealing with uh, COVID. It's pretty good with the variants. I think there's about Mexico, South Africa, the UK. They've got trials going on and all of that. So, yeah, Novavax, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Steph, I thought empiricism was the idea that knowledge can only be obtained through the senses. I don't think so. You can get knowledge through dreams. You can get knowledge about truth in your life through dreams. There's on the senses. Um, thoughts on Russia? I mean, Russia is pretty based. Uh, Russia dealt with Islamic terrorism in the um, theater pretty uh, solidly. And Russia as a Christian nationalistic country, uh, of course, is going to be attacked by the uh, leftists and atheists in the media. So. Had someone tell me children, meaning 10 and below, aren't sentient and people don't remember their childhood. Wicked stuff. Oof. I'm also Canadian and I worry about my kids in this country in 20 years facing down the progressing authoritarianism. For 20 years, really? You're, you're very optimistic. What do you believe will happen to Western races in 100 years from now? I don't know what you mean by Western races. 
I mean, the whole, the whole current society is, is predicated on the idea that human beings aren't tribal. It's a whole thing. Every, everything is predicated on the idea that human beings aren't tribal. I'm not sure how you explain evolution in that context, but that's the whole thing, right? So, uh, seriously, I stopped talking to my dad and sister because passports condone violence against me. It feels weird. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I will close it down for the night. I'm sorry for those who came late, but, uh, well, you came late. So, <laughs> so you get, uh, you, you miss the credits. So, okay. Um, how do I change my determinist friend's mind? <laughs> I assume that's a joke. All right. Is Supply Crunch coming? Yeah, Chris Martinson's got some good stuff on, on that. So, yeah, food in the basement is probably a pretty good idea. What a, a treat and a pleasure to chat with you guys. I absolutely love these conversations. I really uh, worship you guys as an audience. And I always hope that I'm able to provide good value for the time that you spend here. I really, really appreciate it. Have yourselves a wonderful wonderful evening. Don't forget, I'm going to do some more live streams, kind of spur of the moment stuff on freedomain.locals.com. So you can sign up there. You don't have to pay. It's free. If you do want to support me financially, I wouldn't say no. You know, it's rough times as we know economically, but um, have a great evening. Don't forget my free, free book. Free book. I got two for you. So um, you can go to freedomain.com forward slash books and you can get all of my books there. Don't forget almostnovel.com, almostnovel.com. Just get that. Start listening to the first. Just give it half an hour. Give the first half an hour of this book. You will fall in love with that book. So I hope that you will uh, check it out. Big fan of the spontaneous streams. Looking forward to it. Yeah. As long as the spontaneous streams aren't peeing my bed, I'm good with them too. So thanks everyone so much. Lots of love from here. Have a great, great evening. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.